Today's episode of Great Minds is brought to you by TiVo. TiVo knows things are far from normal. The last few months, TiVo's helped me rediscover and reconnect with shows I had long forgotten about. Thanks to TiVo, I've watched Mad Men. Boy, what a great series that is, and I never would have found it without TiVo. So if you're thinking about where and how you can promote your shows and movies to millions of highly engaged U.S. households, think TiVo. There's no better way to reach your audience and find out what they're searching for than TiVo. Their suite of offerings drives viewers directly to your programming. From in-guide ad banner placements to content-rich native offerings, find out how to make the most of your programming promotions by emailing TiVo at getconnectedattivo.com. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, hi, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Today, our guest is Sarah Kate Ellis, president and CEO of GLAAD. Sarah is a native New Yorker. She grew up in Staten Island. And we shared a lot of stories about growing up in New York. I grew up in a suburban area in New York, also in Queens. And we both sort of traced our journeys, in a sense, together, growing up, experiencing New York, remembrances of Times Square when it was a little bit different than it is today. And we trace Sarah's career, of course. She's worked for some of the great legends in publishing. And we really trace her journey from college, where she sort of first took a step in the direction she would ultimately be in, as a fierce, fierce advocate for the LGBTQ community. She does an incredible job leading GLAAD. She is just a real, real spark, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to her, and we sort of discovered a bunch of things about each other. So I think you'll really enjoy this. I sure did, and we look forward to doing a lot more stuff with Sarah and her terrific team at GLAAD. Enjoy this conversation with Sarah Kate Ellis. Early on, you've had an incredible media career, and I want to talk about everything. I know, you know, what you did with Real Simple in particular was such a highlight. Uh, I know you've got a great athletic background, playing field hockey and, and swimming. But I want to hone in on your effort where you led a media campaign against an attempt to shut down a women's center at college. And you were yeah. very young when that happened. And it ended up being sort of a harbinger of where you would end up much later in your career. But yes. can you take take me back to that time and what happened? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've often thought, thought about that. And, it, you know, it's like the foreshadowing of your life. And I didn't realize it at the time. But um, my my best friend had organized sort of the protest, if you will. So I, I went to an all-female college. And if you can believe it or not, at the women's college, they were going to close down the women's center, which was sort of the space for 
women's studies. <laughs> it was bizarre. Um, so um, uh, my my friend, my best friend at that time, organized sort of the protest and the sign and all of us getting together. And I realized, you know, a protest is only as big as the ears that it falls on. And so I called the local newspapers and said, you know, we're protesting. We're going to be out at this time in front of this building, um, coming down and, and, and see us or, or you should grab this. And they did. And my first, I was on the cover of the, oh gosh, the times union, I think it is called in Albany and, um, uh, marching in front of the women's center with protest signs of not shutting it down. They did shut the women's center down. Um, it was defunded in the end. Um, so, um, but it really was sort of my entryway into, and not realizing it was so instinctual at that moment in time to like, just you, you've got to get the media there for a protest to get more, um, people aware of what's going on. So it's fascinating. And all these years later, you become such a fierce advocate for the LGBT community and diversity inclusion in the broadest definitions. Did you know then, hey, this is something that it spark anything or it was just something that was of the moment? I had no, it didn't. I didn't know. I knew um, coming out of college that I really wanted to do something that was creative, but I was a business person. And so I ended up in magazines and media. And that to me was beyond thrilling. I understood the power and the influence that media had or the absence of media has. And so I wanted to be part of that. And I was always, I was raised um, to have opinions, to speak up about those opinions and to be of service. So that was in my DNA, but that wouldn't sort of, that, that came out on my personal time when I would go to a protest or participate in some, some form of, um, advocacy. And then it wasn't until obviously much later in life where those two worlds collided. But growing up in Staten Island, and I guess you went to the Staten Island Academy. Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was a pretty conservative area. What was what? What do you remember from that time, that earlier time, even before college? Yeah, um, you know, it it is, and it remains a very conservative area. It's a short ride on a ferry to travel from Manhattan to Staten Island, but the politics here are a world away from the other four boroughs in New York. Here, most people are staunchly Republican. Another battleground. It's sort of an open secret. Overwhelmingly Democratic New York City is actually home to a Republican congressman in a district that voted overwhelmingly for President Trump. I call it the red state of New York. So it was difficult. It wasn't easy. I think that uh, Staten Island can be developed properly. It can be developed logically. But we need a little time to catch up for the years during which Staten Island has, in fact, been the forgotten borough. For me, I was kind of tricked in the sense by myself, in the sense that I was, you know, a part of New York City. So I felt that freedom and that um, that diversity of New York City. But then I lived on Staten Island, which is very um, conservative. 
and not, it, it is diverse, but it's not integrated. Um, and so I, I think I, I thought I was, I, I knew a lot about diversity and inclusion until I really got out into the world and realized that I, I, I grew up in a very small area of New York City. And even in the biggest city in the world, you can still live in a very small, small place of it. Yeah, no, Staten Island is, is a unique place. And did you and your friends, I remember I grew up in Bayside, Queens, which was, yeah, you know, also relatively suburban. And it was a big deal for us when we were in high school, you know, to figure out which bus and which subway we'd get get ourselves to Jamaica and take the E or the F into <laughs> Manhattan. And then Times Square was dangerous. Um, oh, yeah. did, did you and your friends used to take oh, the ferry yeah. and come into the city? Oh, yeah. And it was exciting. The world's most fabulous ocean voyage. Fresh air, sea breezes, views of breathtaking splendor and the sights of a lifetime are yours when you board the Staten Island ferry boat at the foot of the Battery in Manhattan. When I was in high school, New York City was the backdrop to my life it, because it was there was so much more out there. Um, and you felt like you could explore so much more. Um, it was really exciting to be, you know, growing up in the in the backyard of New York, of Manhattan. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine. I was talking to Darlene Love earlier, who I was thrilled to talk to. She's going to be on Great Minds, oh. and we used to go and see her perform every year at BB King's. Mm-hmm. And and I was explaining to her there was a time not that long ago because she was not a New Yorker; she's from LA originally, where you couldn't walk through Times Square. Oh, it was a very different, it was, New York City was gritty. It was, um, it felt, it, it just had a very different feel to it. And yes, there were areas, even 14th Street. I mean, I later in life, I lived on 14th Street. You would walk really fast on 14th Street, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and 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 try and get to the subway or to the train or to the taxi as soon as possible. So like Times Square, 14th Street, all of these areas, Chelsea, I mean Chelsea was a forbidden area because it was it it, it didn't it it hadn't um it was really desolate and 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 it wasn't um it wasn't safe. New York overall wasn't safe. It was a lot less safe than it is today, I would argue. So here you are, you graduate from Russell Sage, you've got a little bit of, you know, sort of spark under your belt and that you could see there was a little fire that was burning and you get yourself a gig at Condé Nast and was House and Garden, is that what you've worked on first? Oh yeah, I was at House and Garden Magazine, the relaunch team at House and Garden Magazine. I was 23, four years old, whatever I was at that moment in time and here I was at Condé Nast with like the world was our oyster. Um, it was when Condé Nast and media publishing was, you know, at the pinnacle. It was so exciting. Um, and we, we, I was hired, I was the fifth hire on the relaunch team. And our job was to get the magazine back out there in, and we had a year and a half to do it. Could you imagine? Um, in this day and age. And, um, it was just such an exciting time cause I was really learning about media and publishing and storytelling and business 
all at the same time. And I was young in New York City, um, feeling a lot freer than I had ever felt. And, and I wasn't out at all. At, actually, I wasn't out at all. Um, in fact, when I started at Condé Nast, I wasn't even out to my family. I mean, I knew, but I wasn't telling anyone. And I was um, absolutely concerned that it would demolish my career. And I was determined to have a career. Um, so I I didn't come out for a very long time. Um, I did come out within a few years to my parents. Um, but I still, I felt very much like, you know, I wanted to be measured and judged on my performance at work and not who, not my sexual orientation. Right, right. And that was, I, w- I want to go back to some of that. That's, you just opened up a treasure trove of things for us to talk about. But, <laughs> but go back to that era of Condé Nast. That was really the heyday. Oh. And you look back and it's almost, you can look at it almost with a romance as to the characters and and what they meant to culture in general. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at that moment in time, what Condé Nast blessed um, was the culture of the moment, right? Um, it became the culture of the moment. Wherever those editors um, sprinkled their fairy dust or gave their blessing, um, that was the time of Anna Wintour. <laughs> Anna Wintour is recognized as the most powerful woman in fashion. You could probably describe Anna in a word or in like a novel, but not in a sentence. And when she was hitting her um, pinnacle and there were all of these celebrity um, editor in chiefs who were determining what was important and what wasn't important in terms of culture. I do feel that Vogue has a standard of excellence that is unsurpassed in the world of um, fashion magazines and we have an incredible history that we have to maintain its standards. And I think that we have that aura, we have that point of view that to be in Vogue really means something, that you're attaining something. It's not just a magazine, it's a... I don't know, it's like Coca-Cola or Nike. I mean, it's a huge brand. And and I think it was a time um, for me being young and learning so much that it was really, and, and, and also, you know, I was an assistant, so my salary was nothing. But the beautiful thing was that we had these expense accounts that were, and I imagine like working in Silicon Valley now is similar to it, um, where it was just, you know, my boss at one time said to me, you should never pay for a meal or a taxi. You should always be in a car and ordering food into the office or going out to eat. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, here I am in my early 20s. I would never have thought that. Um, but that was the culture. Um, so it was exciting. You'd go to all the fanciest restaurants you could get in because you were Condé Nast. You know, it was an exciting time. And who were some of the early great minds that you remember who really mentored you and took you under their wing? Well, at Condé, at, at House and Garden, you know, um, David Carey was the publisher. Um, and I learned so much from him in terms of business and how to grow business and how to go after business. And um, my director report at that time was Brenda Saget, who was the associate publisher 
of House and Garden. Um, I think David is the CEO of Hearst now. If yes. I'm, yeah, he's had a great career. Yeah, amazing career. Um, so, and and Brenda was the publisher of many magazines. Um, and so, um, and, and Ellen Carucci. Ellen Carucci was my other boss, um, who I'm sure is is selling somewhere. She was one of the greatest salespeople in the world. But you know, they all um, had time for you then, right? They and and, and it, there wasn't formalized mentoring at that time, or it, at least at that company. I'm sure other companies had it, but they would always spend time teaching um, and and helping you understand how the world worked and how um, and how business worked and how to get ahead. Great. Great. And at the same time, going back to what we were touching on earlier, as a person, you were struggling a little bit at that time, it sounds like. Oh, definitely. You know, I think, so my perception of the industry was that, and this might be warped, who knows, but is that if you were a gay man, you were celebrated and appreciated. You had style, you had taste. Um, a lot of the top editors were gay men, especially in fashion, beauty, home furnishings. If you were a lesbian, um, you were not celebrated. Um, you were sort of dismissed. Um, and so I felt as though um, it wasn't a safe place to be who I am um, or was at that time. Then, you know, you would go on these these sales meetings or these trips all over the world and you'd have to share rooms. I mean, I, I, I imagine today I, at running an organization now we would never have people share rooms, but back then I guess it wasn't. So you would be, you know, you'd get a roommate if we went to on a big sales meeting and I didn't want anybody worrying or, you know, like all of the old stereotypes and tropes I would worry about. Um, and I just didn't want that to become any of the conversation. I always wanted to be seen as someone who was a hard worker and smart and not just for who I loved, which is amazing because when you went, when I finally did come out, um, and I had to come out at that point because I really wanted to be a leader. And I felt that, in order to be a leader, I couldn't be lying about who I was and that who would follow me or who would believe me or trust me if they understood like, oh, right, Sarah Kate on the weekend just sits around and does nothing or, you know, like you're always thinking and having to sort of come up with different stories to, to, to dodge the truth um, and create scenarios. It's like, and people would try and set you up and it was super uncomfortable, you know, and I just felt that in order to progress in my career, it got to a point where I, I couldn't do it authentically if I wasn't who I was. And that's when I decided to come out. And that's when I started at Real Simple in, in October of 2001. I can practically tell you the day. And, um, and I think what that did end up doing was what I feared the most ended up being the best situation for me by being out and authentic and true. I was able to soar. It's then I started to really soar and my career took off because then I wasn't being held back by any kind of 
lies. I hate to call them lies because I wasn't intentionally lying, you know, but it, what they were at the end of the day, if you're speaking in terms of black and white lies, you know, um, and I, and, and, it, and they really held me back. I was reading about your academic background, and we were both majors in sociology. Yes. And people would ask me, I went to Emory, and people mm-hmm. would ask me, what was sociology? Like, what did you learn? And what I used to say, and I haven't thought about this probably now in 30 years, but what I used to say was, well, it teaches you how to think. <gasps> That's what I always say. Okay. That's really wild. Okay. Is that weird or no? That it is weird. weird to me. Yeah. I always said, I, you know, unless you were going to be a doctor, learn how to think. And I, I always felt like it gave me a different perspective that I could think, I could see problems, solutions, situations from multiple angles because you're coming at it from a psychological angle, a sociological angle, whatever angle. But sociology opened and expanded that to in a way that I, I agree, it taught me how to think. Yeah, so I think there's a narrative where I'm trying to get to, and let's see if I'm getting to a place that's real, <laughs> is, that was a pretty good coincidence. Um, early on, you were on defense. You did not want your personal lifestyle choice to impact on how people perceived you at work. You didn't want it to hold you back. You didn't want to be talked about. You were worried about stereotypes. And I agree with you at that time, and I think still to some degree today, difference in how gay men and lesbians are perceived in the workplace. Somewhere along the line, you went from defense to offense, and it was desire to do what you are now really known for, which is leadership, that caused you to flip that switch. Does that sound pretty right? I always say if you're running a defense, you're losing. If you're running an offense, you're winning. And I mean, look, we all have to run defenses sometimes. But if you're overarching coming from an offense, that means that you're determining the path. You're determining the future. That's all to say that um, we... That, that I agree. I think I, I never really thought of it in those terms, though, in an offense versus a defense way. And I, that's really enlightening to me. Um, that's giving me my little Oprah aha moment. Because I think that applies to so much of what we do, even as we sit here in COVID-19, right? And we're struggling through that. I've always, you know, when I was at Time Inc., I was under the CEO, uh, Ann Moore, who I just thought walked on water. And when, in 2008, when the market crashed and um, everybody was, you know, it was a mess. And, and the media industry was a mess because we were already being really, um, you know, the media industry was already sort of coming undone because of, you know, the internet and social media and what was going on digitally. And Anne said at that time, if you have cash now, you are king. If you prepared for this moment, you can make really smart strategic moves. And I, you know, I had a big team at that time and I had to let go of a lot of people. I was nine months pregnant or eight and a half months pregnant. It was a very stressful time. That was, you know, December, 2008. I've always taken that. And so when COVID-19, I built our business at Real Simple, our, our, our social impact business with a safety net in it. 
so that I could, because I feel that what GLAD does is so important to the world and to the culture, I want to make sure that it outlives any of us. And and so here we are now in COVID-19, and I can't get Anne Moore out of my head. And we are in a very, um, as good as you can be position with, you know, losing quite a bit of money because she taught me that in 2008. And that is, that's, a, that's an offense. That's running offense, not a defense. Those companies who, who, who ended up buying back all their, using all this money to buy back their stock and, and are, are cash poor right now, they're in a defense position and they put themselves in a defense position. And I think that as leaders, it's really important that we're building offensive positions. I, I didn't think of it in those terms before, but now that you've given me that, I've, I, I have a lot to, I have a lot to think about. <laughs> So tell us about that moment when you said, I have to live my own truth. Was there an incident? Was it an epiphany? Um, did you just wake up one morning and say, enough? What was it? I think I was, so I had, I, I was leaving in style and I was going to Real Simple and September 11th had happened. Um, so it was 2001. And I'd been interviewing with Real Simple through, um, you know, right before September 11th happened and then um, got the position like uh, probably the week after. And I realized at the moment in time that this was my opportunity. Here I am going to join a whole new team and someone's going to ask me and I can't do it again. I've got to just say the truth. And so I'll remember you were in New York City, so you remember we would go down to um, the Lower West Side along the West Side Highway and cheer all of the um, frontline people who were digging out the World Trade Center. And so Real Simple was doing that one night. It was before I had started actually officially working there and they asked me to go and then we were going to go out to dinner right around there because everybody wanted us to go down and support the restaurants down there if you remember back to those days and um we were at the restaurant we were at uh bubby's and sitting around and someone directly across the table said to me oh so are you dating anyone and i thought oh here we go and so i just blurted it out um I said, yes, actually. And she works in advertising, blah, blah. And I just kept going. I mean, I had to be as red as a tomato and I thought I died, but the conversation wasn't interrupted. Somebody else picked up and kept the move going. Like it was just part of the conversation. It wasn't like it ended the conversation. And, and then I just kept coming out from there. I mean, when you're LGBTQ, you have to come out every day, especially if you're a parent. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, and I've been coming out my whole life. I still am. And that really turbocharged your career. That's when your rocket ship really took off. I would say yes, it, 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 it was, um, because it was, there was like this, you know, there's a lot of thinking that goes into hiding and covering who you are, a lot of energy. And that wasted productivity and energy now I was able to put into smart thinking around business, smart thinking about building my careers, networking, all of the things that that would have all the energy that would have been taken from 
that was now able, was freed up. Now, you know, it's, it's funny. Now we're in this different era where all of us, because of the coronavirus, are effectively housebound. And my wife and I were sleeping, you know, reasonably well, not great, but, you know, not awful. And she'll comment that, gee, I'm tired. And it's emotional energy. Yeah. And, and I think we yeah. don't always count that, but that counts. That's, I think that's a great insight because I, I'll say that at the end of the day, especially in the beginning of this, the first few weeks, I, I think it's, I've, it's been a little bit more normalized for me now. But, you know, those first few weeks, it's a crisis um, of, of pretty epic levels. And that emotional toll, I would go, I would get into bed and you're like, I'm not even leaving the house. I'm not even commuting. I'm not even walking hardly, right? I'm walking up and down a flight of stairs maybe. And I would be exhausted, like couldn't keep my eyes open. And I bet you're right. It's that emotional toll and you're, it, it, it weighs a lot. And I think you're right. We, I probably didn't take a lot of that into consideration. Right. And that's got to be absolutely emotionally exhausting. worrying about covering your tracks and how do you answer this question and what do you say at this or that family dinner when you get asked a question by an aunt or a cousin or that's got to be absolutely exhausting. It it is because, you know, they say, I'm not a big liar, fortunately in my life. Um, but they say you really can't remember lies. Like, and, and so you would have to try and remember them. Like, Oh, I didn't, you know, you might've been in Provincetown for the weekend, but you'd say, oh, you know, I just went away to Boston with some friends. It's like you're in Boston with friends. Like, then you have to remember that, you know, and it's a lot of energy. So then we move on and you're now a Titan and then you end up (laughs) running a a whole group at Vogue. Yep. Yep. I went to, yeah. So I went, uh, yeah, I went to InStyle to Real Simple. And then I went to corporate when they were trying to reimagine corporate at Time Inc. And then from there I went to Vogue, which was wild and fun. Um, and then I ended up back at Real Simple, um, and spent a large time at Real Simple, um, and which ended up becoming the lifestyle group, which was about 13, um, digital and print properties. Um, yeah. So, and, and that was all amazing. And, you know, it was interesting though, because for me, what ended up, what, what became the, it's time to, to go someplace else was that, you know, after 2008, it was really difficult to get, uh, you know, back to the imaginative creative space that, that, that publishing was once in. And I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a builder that's what I do. I build things. I don't run things as well as I build them. And I think it's really important to know what you do really well. I can dream and vision and build once I'm in like maintenance mode. Um, I'm not very interested. And especially if maintenance mode for most people is like, you know, you know, flat sales or, you know, you, you, your, your revenue is, is based on cutting. Um, and, and that's where magazines ended up going was that because of between the financial crisis and the onsite of digital, it ended up becoming really um, a constricted environment to work in from a print standpoint. And, well, and you, you joined right at the height too yes, when you started your career. Exactly. So I only, you know, it's like, you can't take that away. 
Um, but I realized I wanted to build. And I think that's important when people are thinking about their careers and what they want to do is like, what are you like? You are, you do many things. You do a lot of things, but what are you at your core? And I'm a builder an imagineer at my core. So talk about your road to glad. There is no gay agenda. It's a human agenda. You know, to me, it's well more than a job. It really is a calling for me. I believe in my in my soul. I am in the perfect place for who and what I am. All of us should be treated the same. And Glad knows that. Why shouldn't gay people be allowed to marry? Those against gay marriages say marriage should only be between a man and a woman. God, I of all people know that that doesn't always work. My love and understanding for media and um, my love and understanding of my community is um, I, I get to, to care about that every day. And that feels just, I feel so fortunate for that, for finding it, for it being so visible to me and for being able to do it on a daily basis and to, you know, at some level, make a difference in the world. You've been there now about six years or so. So where have we seen progress? What are you most proud of? And where do you still see the most work to be done? So I think I could start with where I see the most work to be done, which is funny that we're on the phone um, or on the podcast, um, because I think the most work that can be done really, truly is through advertising and communications. Um, I think we've done a marvelous job and we, there's more work to be done. Don't get me wrong. We have quite a bit of ways to go, but in television and studios, I think we've moved really far, um, ahead of where we were. We have a lot of, a lot more to do there. Um, I think that we've, you know, what I'm most proud of is that, and, and it's even before my time, but that GLAD got, we were founded during the AIDS crisis. We were founded during a um, health crisis, actually. And at that moment in time, you know, we would protest, our founders would protest the New York Post and other other newspapers to, to set the record straight, to get the, the story right and accurate and fair. Um at the same time, they realized that because no one's telling our stories, that people who don't know our stories are crafting them in, in their, from their view. And so we started right away lobbying Hollywood to start telling our stories in TV and film. And that has been a very successful formula in growing the, in, in laying the groundwork, or as I say, softening the ground so that we could move forward on marriage equality, um, so that we could move forward on other policy. So I would say the two biggest places that we need to focus, I think advertising is pervasive and able to tell stories and can change hearts and minds in, in, a, in the most um, amazing way. And number two is we still have 
a lot of policy that needs to be pushed through. We can still be fired in over half the states. We can still be denied housing. There's right now in front of the Supreme Court that we're expecting any day a decision on three employment cases as to whether or not you can fire someone simply for being LGBTQ. Well, I mean, Gail, these cases will really be the first sign of how this new conservative Supreme Court is going to approach gay rights issues. Here, the court will decide whether Title VII of the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964, which protects people on the job from discrimination on the basis of sex, and that's long been thought to be male or female, also applies to sexual orientation and gender identity. So we have a long way to go in our policy front, and we have um, a long way to go in changing hearts and minds. And I think the next frontier for changing hearts and minds is in advertising. There are some brands who you've been working with who I think are doing a fantastic job. And I know one of those is uh, the team Mark Pritchard leads at P&G. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're leading the way, honestly. Um, And we're happy to be a partner in that. Um, So what we do at GLAD, part of our work is the GLAD Media Institute, where we... um, where we consult, we help, we advise. Um, we we do. Th- we've always done that for television and studios, and we do it for Fortune 500 companies, especially those that advertise, because we know in the public domain the way that these companies use their platforms influence people and influences perceptions. And so, P and G is a great example. We they did a fabulous um, campaign around. Um, the holidays, this past holidays, about trans people going home and how difficult trans, how how difficult it is for trans, some trans people to go home. So trans people could be living their authentic life and then have to morph when they go home because they're not accepted at home. So they did this wonderful campaign that we helped advise with. And now our advice ranges everything from, um, from, from, helping with casting to reviewing scripts to being embedded in productions. Um, it, it really, or just giving ideas um, if they want to throw ideas at um, whatever it is. But we know that these ads then run oftentimes globally, um, which can have a really powerful impact in hearts and minds. So I know a big part of what you do and we touched on it is to speak out against anti LGBTQ legislation. And mm-hmm. I always think of, it was a very famous boxer, this was many, many years ago, named Jack Johnson. And Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight champion. And that was goes all the way back, you know, we're well over 100 years ago. And there were many people who did not like that there was a black heavyweight champion. And Jack Johnson was arrested over something called the Man Act, which was a law that said it is illegal for a black man to transport a woman across state state lines. And he was arrested and jailed. And to this day, in so many states in our country, there are archaic laws that forbid behavior, in particular, that impact on your community, that are on the books in an incredibly high number of places. I think... One of the challenges with marriage equality, where it was phenomenal and raised visibility in such a positive, amazing way, um, was that 
uh, many Americans think that that was the finish line, that that was it for the LGBTQ community and not realizing that we're still not safe. Like you could, you can get married on Friday, on Friday or Saturday and fired on Monday. Um, and it is protected. The employer is protected and it's happening across the country. So those are really important, um, really important laws that we do need to change. And we have the Equality Act, which passed the House, but can't get through the Senate at this moment in time. Um, I do think that there's a future for it, um, but it's 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 sort of dead on arrival right now um, in Congress. So what do you do in a situation now where you're absolutely stuck in Congress? Do you just look at your you know leadership team and say, all right, listen, on these five issues, we're going to throw in the towel for the next four years? I find Never. I find that hard to no. believe. That doesn't sound like you. Never. No. I think it's public education. I think what I find is as soon as people hear this, they're outraged. See, I knew marriage equality was going to pass when um, my wife and my now wife, we weren't married then, lived across the street. In, and I live out on Long Island. And we, um, our neighbor, Mike, and his wife, Janet. Mike is just like you. Like Queens guy, awesome, amazing. And we're sitting down at dinner at his house. Um, he has a little girl. We have twin. I, they're probably like two year olds at that point in time. And uh, he and and we're talking about life in general. And I said um, something along the lines of like, well, you know, we have to do, go through all this adoption and second parent and blah blah blah. And I'm explaining to him all the all the rigor that we have to go through. And he and I said, because we can't get married. And his head exploded. I can't believe you can't get married. That's crazy. That's when you know public sentiment, public opinion has been moved. Um, when it's your neighbor who understands it, who's who doesn't think about it really because it's not part of their lives, right? But then understands it and, and is knowledgeable about it. So I think it's important that we're educating people, that people understand that these are still issues and still problems. And so we do many campaigns that continue to educate people about it. Great. Yeah. Well, to me, listen, equality to me is neither a democratic nor a Republican issue. It's a basic human issue. Right. I And that's, that's the, and most Americans think that, you know, we do quite a number of research and reports out of the Glad Media Institute, one of the research pieces that we do annually is called Accelerating Acceptance, where we ask questions um, on acceptance. So basically, the the temperature for whether or not the country was safe for LGBTQ people for many years before marriage equality was, are you for or against marriage equality? It never asked, how do you feel about an actual gay couple living next to you? How do you feel about your kid having an LGBTQ history lesson at school? And we wanted to know how Americans really felt. And what we found is that we still have quite a bit of ways to go on the, on that. But one thing that we found universally, year over year, we've been doing this for seven years now, is that everybody, and when I say everybody, I think it's 90% of Americans think LGBTQ people should have equal rights. It crosses all party lines. It is a human right. So let's talk about what's on your plate for um, the remainder of 2020, 2021. We can talk about how the coronavirus has changed that. But 
beyond, uh, you know, assuming at, at some point that this corona fog lifts, what are your priorities looking ahead and, you know, hopes and dreams for the next, you know, 12 months, 18 months? Um, well, my, when, you know, my hope and dream is that we do get this, um, handled properly, um, that, um, in terms of the coronavirus and, um, that we are able to move forward as a country and we will, um, I think for us, it's, um, you know, there are two really important things that I've prioritized over the, the next six to nine months. And one is, um, our advertising relationships and building out what that looks like, creating potentially standards for the advertising community for being LGBTQ inclusive. And then the second piece is, you know, um, one of the, one of the, one of the media platforms where we are not safe as a community is on um, digital. And so social media platforms have been both an amazing connector for the LGBTQ community. And then once one of the most largest offenders of our community, allowing harassment and hate talk and, and just horrible behavior. Um, And so we've been working on, just like we do reports on studios and television, um, where we, where we measure representation, we're looking at social media platforms and how do we measure safety for the LGBTQ community on those platforms. So that's a big initiative of ours to moving out. And then we have the election. Let us not forget, um, for our community, um, you know, since the last election, 2016, we've been tracking, we've, we've, you know, it's been, it's been a pretty tough three and a half years for the LGBTQ community. We haven't advanced very much. Um, what we have been doing is either protecting what's already in place or they've been rolled back. We've seen quite a number of rollbacks. And so, um, we keep track of, of it through a accountability project that we have on our site. Um, and there's been over 125 attacks or rollbacks from this current administration on the LGBTQ community. So we want more and more LGBTQ people to vote, um, because when they do vote, they vote for pro equality candidates. Um, and that will help us move the equality act forward as well. So, um, I'm hopeful that, this next election, um, we can, we, you know, the LGBTQ voter last election in the pri in the, um, excuse me, not the primary, uh, the, uh, midterm, um, 6% of voters were LGBTQ. We at GLAD are trying to get 7.2%. If that's the case, then we can see that will have an enormous swing in, um, especially in the swing states on pro-equality officials up and down the ballot. Fantastic. Well, that's a very uh, worthy agenda for the next you know, period of time. This was absolutely uh, wonderful uh, for us to get a oh, chance to chat you. like this. I think you're amazing. I think you're so insightful. Thank you for, I mean, I think you're our, our, our male Oprah. Oh, come on. I mean, you were bringing insights. And an aha moment. Oh, please. So I'm just a, just a, a bagel baker from Bayside, Queens.
Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. 